So a question for you as I start this, this afternoon. What makes people happy? What makes people happy? The famous cartoonist Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, had an answer for this question. Do you know it? Happiness is a warm puppy. That's Peanuts. Happiness is a warm puppy. A report in Parade magazine surveyed people around the world to find out how they sought happiness. The Austrians said health is the most important ingredient for happiness. The Finns said it's kindness. The Macedonians, honesty. The Dutch were being honest, I guess, when they said beauty in women and handsomeness in men make for great happiness. The British, my own heritage, claim a sense of humor is the one indispensable thing for true happiness. The island that we know as Cyprus is in Greek, Makaria, or literally, the happy place, because the Greeks believed that, that Cyprus was so perfect in its climate and its natural beauty that it had everything you needed for true happiness. And then finally, the Italians, the Japanese, and the Americans all agreed that while money is no guarantee of happiness, it sure helps. Now, Jesus has a very different answer for us. Imagine that. What makes people happy? We are working our way through the Beatitudes, found in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. And we've learned that the word blessed, found in each one of these Beatitudes, is, um, means happy or even flourishing. So as we've done each week, let's read these Beatitudes together. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, let's briefly review some of the principles that apply to all of these Beatitudes. As Pastor Andy explained, the word blessed is, is sometimes explained as happiness, but it means far more than superficial happiness. Our word flourishing gives the sense of it. It also includes peace, security, stability, prosperity. So if we seek for true happiness, and Jesus tells us not to look for it in wealth, nor beauty, nor popularity, not even in a sense of humor, 
and not even a warm puppy. As Pastor Andy also explained, these these nine Beatitudes are nine qualities that God is forming in his children. They are a process in the life of the believer, life qualities and not a checklist. This is not like some pizza that we can cut into slices and then each one of us gets a slice or two so that some people have this Beatitude and others have that Beatitude. These are qualities that God is forming and growing in us as we seek to follow Jesus and be like him. So it is not that some of us will be poor in spirit and others will be gentle and others mourn and perhaps a few will hunger and thirst after righteousness. No, we are all called to be poor in spirit as we enter the kingdom of heaven. We are all called to hunger and thirst after righteousness as we grow to be like Jesus Christ. Each one of these Beatitudes has two parts or two lines. The first line is one of these qualities of the blessed, happy, flourishing person. But then the second line there follows a promise that comes as we grow in that quality. And each promise starts with the words, for they or for theirs. Now, you can't see it in the English language, but the words they or theirs are very emphatic in the original language. And so the sense of it is, theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In each one of these nine Beatitudes, that word is placed in the emphatic position. So we could read them like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, and only they, will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they, and only they, will inherit the earth. In other words, this is the only way to genuine happiness. They, and only they, who follow these words of Jesus, will find happiness. Now, last Sunday, Andy led us through the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and only theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit, he explained, are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God, who look to God alone because they in themselves are destitute. They have nothing. And the poor in spirit understand that they can never make themselves acceptable to God, that they have nothing to offer to God, so they trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Being poor in spirit is how we come into the kingdom of God, and it is how we live in the kingdom of God. When we realize our utter helplessness, our complete lack of resources to meet life's troubles, then God can help us. As long as we're trying to do it on our own, thinking that we can meet the challenges and the troubles and the pains of life in our own strength, we will, not fa- we will fail. We'll not be able to. We're hopeless and helpless. And David says in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite spirit, O God, thou wilt not despise. And so what does this first beatitude mean? 
we could say it like this. Oh, the bliss of the one who has realized his or her own spiritual helplessness and has put his or her trust in God alone. Theirs and only theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how can we cultivate spiritual poverty in our hearts and what does it look like? Well, it's the opposite of spiritual pride. It is the opposite of the Pharisee that Keith read about. It is humility. It is brokenness. What does it look like as it grows? Well, it is a continued dependence upon God throughout life. It is not my strength, but God. It is a continued growing faith and trust in God because I have nothing in myself and I trust in Him. It is a growing life of prayer as we call upon God. It is a growing love and empathy for others because we realize that we also have nothing. It's great gratitude and great thanksgiving because we realize that everything we have comes from God. We are bankrupt spiritually. That's a quick review from last Sunday. Now, our beatitude for today is the second one, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In order to understand this beatitude, I'll pose three questions. First, what does it not mean to be those who mourn? Second, what does it mean? What kind of mourning is called for? And finally, what kind of comfort is promised? What is this comfort? That's our outline today. What does it not mean? What does it mean? What kind of comfort is promised? So what does it not mean to be those who mourn? Many of you know about Winnie the Pooh's friend Eeyore, the world's most gloomy donkey. Eeyore says things like, thanks for noticing me. I suppose it's going to rain today. Being perpetually gloomy is not what Jesus is teaching. And this is also not teaching mourning over personal misfortune. In Revelation 18, 11, when the great city of Babylon falls, it tells us that the merchants of the earth will mourn. Same word as Matthew 5, 4. Because no one buys their goods anymore. They are mourning for their own selfish loss. So mourning when things don't go your way. Mourning when, when things aren't working out for you is not what Jesus is calling for. That's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 calls worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. This also does not mean mourning about the trouble you're in because of the consequences of your bad choices or your sins. For example, if you are caught stealing, you will be in trouble. You might even go to jail. And I suspect most people would be sad about that. They'd be mourning. But that is also not what Jesus is talking about. That is also worldly sorrow. Never feeling or expressing any joy is not what Jesus is teaching. Philippians 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Rejoice always. 
One of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is joy. Many of the Psalms are profound expressions of joy. Psalm 5.11 says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. There are many Psalms like that. So clearly, Jesus is not forbidding joy, rejoicing, and celebration. Yet, how do we live a life which is simultaneously being those who mourn, Matthew 5, 4, and rejoice always? Again, I say rejoice. Well, what kind of mourning is Jesus calling for? We need to look at the context. In the first beatitude, we recognize, as Andy taught us, that we are destitute of any good in ourselves, anything that would bring us favor with God. And so in the second beatitude, we mourn for our spiritual poverty. We mourn for our sinfulness and our specific sins. And we mourn over those sins with a profound, deep, genuine grief and sorrow. This is not a superficial, oops, I sinned. There are nine different words used in the New Testament, different Greek words, used to express sorrow or mourning. And the word used here is the strongest one of all. This word is used to speak of mourning and grieving over a loved one who had died. It suggests a profound, deep grief for sin and unrighteousness. And we see this not only in the context of the beatitude before it and a couple of the beatitudes that come after it, but the entire Sermon on the Mount deals with this topic of righteousness and what it means to live a righteous life. The key verse for understanding the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5.20. If you have your Bible open, look at Matthew 5.20, where Jesus says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice the connection there with the first beatitude, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's all about righteousness and the kingdom of heaven. And and this was also a very shocking statement to those who were listening. The the scribes and the Pharisees were, in the eyes of many people, the apex, the pinnacle of righteousness. And, And this would be like saying to the aspiring high school basketball player who's hoping to make the team, unless your righteousness, no, unless your skills exceed that of Steph Curry and Michael Jordan, you're not going to make it. No, that's impossible. Who could, who could exceed that? And that's how people reacted to this statement. And yet the rest of chapter 5 goes on to explain what Jesus says in Matthew 5.20. As six times, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, six times, that's the rest of chapter 5, is unfolding 
and explaining this statement as Jesus is contrasting the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees as they often repeated what the ancients would say in some of these with his teaching of true righteousness. From verse 20 on, chapter 5 is all about the teaching of true righteousness in contrast with the superficial righteousness, external righteousness, of the scribes and Pharisees. And then chapter 6 contrasts the practices of righteousness. If you have your Bible open, look at at Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, who's in heaven? See, that practicing your righteousness. And the the following verses of chapter 6 explain exactly what it means with three examples. An example of how the, the scribes and the Pharisees give their gifts, give their alms to be seen by people. And he contrasts that with true, meaningful giving from the heart. And he says, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. True giving. And then he contrasts how the scribes and the Pharisees pray to be seen in public and admired by people with true spiritual prayer. And that leads, of course, into teaching the Lord's Prayer. And and finally, he contrasts how the scribes and the Pharisees fast, again, to be seen with true spiritual fasting. And so chapter 6 is this contrast between the practice of righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees with what Jesus teaches as the practice of true righteousness. And then chapter 7 contrasts the destiny of those who practice a superficial, outward, mouth-only righteousness with the destiny of the genuinely righteous. And he says it's those who hear the words of Jesus and act upon them. And finally, chapter 7 ends with this. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Again, a contrast. The entire Sermon on the Mount is a contrast between what Jesus teaches about righteousness and the superficial external rules of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why I say the key verse is Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in the context of the Beatitudes all around it, and in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn over their spiritual poverty, their sin, and their unrighteousness. We're not called to be like gloomy Eeyore, but to be genuinely, profoundly grieved about our sinfulness. And the scripture reading this morning that Keith read, we saw that tax collector who is genuinely, deeply grieved about his sin, He won't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And this man went home justified. This man went home as one who is entering the kingdom 
of heaven. I also think of 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul explains the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow as he writes this. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, he'd written them a letter of rebuke, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. You see that it is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And repentance leads to life. And so the the first beatitude is saying truly happy, flourishing and blessed are the people whose heart is broken and grieving over their sinfulness. And their godly sorrow, I should have said the second beatitude. Blessed are the people whose heart is broken and grieving over their sinfulness with godly sorrow because they and only they will be comforted. You know, in the world outside of Christ, there are a lot of people laughing about their sinfulness. To many people, it's a big joke and a party. They laugh at how wild and crazy they can be. They laugh at God, and they laugh at the people who desire to obey God's word. James 4, verses 8 and 9 says, Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Turn that, that superficial joy into gloom and mourning and draw near to God. Because the only way to real joy is true repentance. The way to a happy, blessed, flourishing life is when we see our own wretchedness and we mourn over it. Just as John Newton wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. And Isaac Watts wrote, alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm? Those words, wretch and worm, John Newton and Isaac Watts are expressing spiritual poverty and mourning over their own sinfulness. So practically speaking, what does this quality look like, this mourning? And how do we grow in it? Well, the answer is much like the first beatitude. Draw near to God. As we get to know God and see God in his word and in prayer, we will see ourselves as we are. We, are, we will weep. The better we know God, the better we will know our own sinfulness. Remember that 
Isaiah saw God high and lifted up in the temple. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is a word of mourning. When Peter saw Jesus early on in the Gospels and he began to comprehend who Jesus really was, Luke 5.8 tells us that he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When the Apostle John saw the glory of Jesus Christ in a vision on the Isle of Patmos, says he fell at his feet like a dead man. The more we see God, the more we see Jesus in his glory, the more we will mourn rightly. Have you ever asked God to show you how black your sins are, how horrible they are before him, your thoughts? For example, we could all mourn, I'm sure, over our lack of love for God. Have I loved the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind? No. Not even close. Have I loved my neighbor as myself? No. Not even close. Grow in us, O oh God, a deeper mourning over our sin. Not only can we mourn over our own sinfulness, we can mourn over the sins of others. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2 says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, that is the church, and immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. When there is sin in the church body, Paul exhorts them to be mourning, to be grieving about it, and that is also the same Greek word as we are reading today in Matthew 5.4, calling for profound sorrow, as if a good friend had died. If there is ever sin in our church, we should be mourning about it. If there is sin in the church of Jesus Christ worldwide, the universal church, we should be mourning about that also. One of the great preachers of the 1800s in Scotland was a young man named Robert Murray McShane. And many, many people came to Christ because of McShane's preaching. And then after he died, a young pastor visited McShane's church and he, he wanted to know the secret of McShane's effective and powerful ministry. And so the old deacon welcomed him into McShane's church and first he took him into the study and he pointed to the chair where McShane sat and the, the books on the table that McShane studied. And he said, sit down in the chair and Place your elbows on the table. And the young man did. And he said, now place your face in your hands. And the man did. And he said, now let the tears flow. Because that's how McShane studied. And then he took the 
young man into the church and into the pulpit, and he said, put your elbows on the pulpit. Put your face in your hands. Now let the tears flow, because that's how McShane preached. Jeremiah wept because of the sins of the people. He's called the weeping prophet. Daniel wept because of the sins of his people. Daniel chapter 9. Ezra wept and mourned according to Ezra 10.1. Nehemiah 1.4 says that Nehemiah mourned for days when he heard about the condition of his people and his city. We also need to weep and mourn for the condition of our world and what's happening in it. As all of us who are regularly here at Grace Fellowship know, Pastor Andy sometimes gets a little choked up when he preaches, and we can see him struggling to hold back tears. And I tell you, that is nothing to be ashamed of, because the great men and women of God have often shed tears as they proclaim the Word of God. The famous evangelist George Whitfield led thousands to Jesus Christ in this country. And, and one of his closest friends said that Whitfield hardly ever preached a sermon without weeping. Sometimes his tears were so excessive that he had to stop his sermon for a few moments to get them under control. And then he would say, you blame me for weeping. But how can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves, though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? Psalm 119, verse 136 says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep thy law. Hear that? My eyes shed streams of water because they, the people out there, do not keep thy law. And so the first blessing, the first quality of true spiritual happiness is a destitute and poor spirit. The second is very much likened to it. The one who mourns for his sinfulness and then even others. For those. And those alone will be comforted. So third, what kind of comfort is promised? The last line, it's a beautiful promise. They shall be comforted. And when we understand that the first line speaks of mourning over our sinfulness and even our specific sins, then the comfort is also clear. It's the comfort that our sins are forgiven, that we are washed as white as snow. It is the comfort of the grace of God towards sinners who repent. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. The more I see my own sin, the more I see the marvelous grace of God. Not only is that a great comfort, that is cause for great rejoicing. So I ask you again, how can we live the Christian life of simultaneously mourning and yet rejoice always? Again, I say rejoice. That joy comes as we reflect 
on the gospel. We reflect upon the fact that we have been washed as white as snow. We reflect on the fact that we have been adopted as children of God. That our sins have been cast into the depth of the sea. That our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. We reflect on Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's comfort. That is real, genuine joy that can never be stolen. Not only that, we rejoice in the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel, which is life forever with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, without sin, without the curse. Listen to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That, my friends, is the ultimate Emmanuel, God with us. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There is coming a day. There is coming a time when there will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any cancer. There will no longer be any mass shootings. There will no longer be any drug dealers on the streets or drug addiction. There will no longer be any political corruption. There will no longer be any wars. There will no longer be any starvation. There will no longer be any suffering. There will no longer be any homeless people. And the list goes on and on and on because there will no longer be sin and the curse. And my friends, that is joy indescribable. A few more practical disciplines to consider from this beatitude as we wrap things up. What do we do about this? Well, I would say reflect on our sins every day. I believe this is why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass among us. Every day, think about your sins and ask God to forgive you. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you your sins. We all have those sins that we don't even realize until by the grace of God, He shows us and we repent. Reflect and grieve over the sins of this world and even the sins of the church of Jesus Christ in this world. Grieve, mourn, weep over the lost. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself daily, Christ died for my sins once for all 
the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. Meditate on the grace of God and how great it is in your life. Take the Lord's Supper faithfully. One reason among several that we all need to consistently, faithfully be in and part of a church is that we take the Lord's Supper together and we remember our sinfulness and our Savior and we have cause for joy. So my main thought for today, you thought I left it out. Andy always does it first or almost always. I saved it for last. Blessed, happy, Flourishing are those who mourn over sin, for they shall receive the indescribable comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Blessed, happy, flourishing are those who mourn over sin, for they shall receive the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shall wipe away every tear from their eye, and one day, there will be no more mourning. In 1847, a doctor in Edinburgh, Scotland, Sir James, could be used as an anesthetic, anesthetic to make people unconscious, and so they didn't experience the pain of surgery. And, and from his work, Dr. James Simpson made it possible for people to have surgery without the fear of pain and suffering. Before that discovery, medical surgery was performed on people who were awake. And the best they could hope for was that they would pass out from the pain. Several years later, while lecturing at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Simpson was asked by a student, what do you consider to be the most valuable discovery of your life? All the students expected Dr. Simpson to speak about chloroform. And to his surprise, to their surprise, he said, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a great sinner and Jesus Christ to be a great Savior. That's the first thing we must discover in these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn.